This is the Life of Jesus podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark Elsesser. For a full year, we've been looking at the life teachings and works of Jesus from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Ben, last time we looked at some of Jesus' interaction with a variety of people, children, rich people, powerful people, common laborers. And this week, we're, we're going to take a look at his interaction with a couple of people who were on the outside who had vision problems. One physical, who wasn't able to see, and the other one was um, just kind of an outsider by his position and status and stature, you might even say, in life. So let's take a, a look at this a little bit and, and uh, think through what Jesus was doing here. There's a particularly good question that Jesus asked. You know, one of the things I love are some of the questions that Jesus asks people, and we'll run into that question. We're in Luke chapter 18, verse 35, as we, as we begin our time today. Did you ever, you know, we're looking at darkness and blindness and some of those themes today. Did you ever play some games when you were a kid down there in the uh, southern bayou where you were running around in the middle of the night and it was dark and you were, uh, or, or did you just live in the suburbs where it was always light? Because where I, where I grew up, when it was dark, it was dark. There, I was in the country, I was in the middle of nowhere in Indiana, and until my dad put a big light in the back of our house, when it got dark, it got dark, and you ran around, and you, if it was a cloudy night, you risked running into a tree. I didn't. What was your uh, childhood growing up there? Yeah, there was some of that. I, I grew up in a suburb um, that now is heavily populated, but wasn't quite as populated when I was a when I was a youngster. But we also had about thirty miles away from where I grew up. We had some property that we leased uh, next to a of family members, um, small, uh, horse farm. And so we had about 300 acres out in the middle of nowhere, uh, that we leased that we used to ride horses on. And yeah, we would go out late at night. We'd have, my brother and I would have friends out there and we'd go out late at night and yeah, you couldn't see if there was, if it was cloudy, if it was a cloudy night, you, you couldn't see a foot in front of your face. It's, it's actually pretty spectacular to be in a place where it's really dark or when you, it is a clear night even and to, to be able to count the oh. stars. Or have you ever been in some of the caves in South Indiana? Um, and one of the things they'll do as a part of like your cave tour or whatever, when they cut the lights in the cave and it's pure darkness, which is something I, I mean, it's the only place I've experienced that level of pure darkness where you literally can't see anything. Yeah. I don't know that that for us approximates what it's like to truly be blind, but here we have a story of someone who is completely blind, and Jesus has compassion on him. I suppose you could say he has mercy on him, because that's what the guy requests. We're in Luke 18, verse 35. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Apparently, this guy had heard of Jesus, had heard of some of the works that had been done, and was maybe hopeful that he would get in on some of that. The blind man called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. 
Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. It's weird that people are always trying to protect Jesus. They're always trying to keep the annoying people away from him and the blind people away and the children away and those who are proclaimed by society to be the sinners away from him. I'm not sure what's going on here. I mean, if Jesus had kind of risen to some celebrity status by now, or if they were really concerned about his spiritual well-being with these people um, coming to him and making him unclean, what do you think's going on with all the people that are continually trying to quiet and silence and distance the, the people of society that aren't the up and up away from Jesus? I'm not totally certain. You know, obviously, uh, the apostles, uh, those surrounding Jesus, they think they know what Jesus is about, um, and they're clearly blind um, to who, I mean, they, they recognize him as Messiah, as Lord, as teacher, as rabbi, but clearly don't understand what his true mission is, because at this point, they are still locked in the belief and understanding that Christ is ultimately going to march into Jerusalem at some point, overthrow the Romans, and then take the seat of authority in Jerusalem. And so they don't grasp the nature of Jesus's mission. They don't grasp the nature, the nature of, uh, of his ministry uh, in full. And so they would have associated uh, those with physical ailments like blindness um, with sin, that most likely this man had committed some sort of sin or his family members had committed some sort of sin that had led to his blindness. And so, yeah, I think a a part of it might have been a means to protect Jesus from uh, that sense of of being uh, contaminated by this spiritually impure man. I wonder if people are still doing that today to a degree of wanting to silence the critics or keep the the people who don't measure up away from Christianity, away from the church, away from pastors. I I don't know if that's the case or not, but it's a it's a curious thing that's happened. It's consistently coming up as we're looking through the life of Jesus. They want to keep those folks away. Well, and clearly we can be blinded, um, and and those who are you know, self-proclaimed Christians can be blinded by self-righteousness. A lot of times when we think about sin, you know, we think about, you know, actions of unrighteousness. We think about sexual immorality. We think about lying. We think about slander or, you know, exhibiting malice toward another. And oftentimes we don't even consider the nature of self-righteousness, which blinds us to our own sin and then, um, blinded to our own sin, we have a way of projecting judgment on to others. Maybe, maybe that's right on the target of how we, we want to do that. I, I, here, what's interesting here is that Jesus doesn't project anything onto this guy at all. Because in verse 40, it says Jesus stopped and ordered the blind man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, and here's the question, what do you want me to do for you. There's no projecting in that. It's an open-ended question, and it seems like it should have an obvious answer, but I guess there probably were a multitude of answers that the man could have given. I suppose he could have said, well, I want you to provide financially for me. 
or I want you to provide people who will always take care of me. In this case, he answered, Lord, I want to see. It's an interesting question. What do you want me to do for you? I I wonder, do you think Jesus is still asking that question of us today? You know, I believe he knows the answer before the man gives the answer. So why ask the question? I think part of it is it's the relational nature of of Christ. It's the relational nature of of God, um, that God engages us uh, relationally. And so it's not just like, you know, part of it is it's, it's, it's an aspect of drawing us into, uh, you know, Jesus, by asking the question, is drawing the blind man into relationship with him, treating him with a, a level of dignity, a level of respect that he wasn't getting from anybody else. I mean, people walked by him, ignored him, maybe threw a few coins his way as he's begging uh, on the street. But people would have uh, avoided him, avoided conversation with him. And here we have, you know, the Lord of the universe engaging in conversation uh, with him while the apostles surrounding him are trying to silence the man. Yeah, we're going to see in a few weeks the, the longer story in John chapter 9 of Jesus healing a man born blind. And all of these themes that you're bringing up are take place in that story as well. I, I just still think it's an interesting question. What do you want me to do for you? And I, I, I do wonder if Jesus asks us that question even now, if the Spirit of Christ is asking us that. And mm. I wonder if we short ourselves because we don't, we don't respond with all the goodness, all the, all the blessings, all the calling. Mm that Christ may offer to us because we just want to get by. Hmm. I don't know the answer to that for sure. I just think it's a tremendous question. Here I am giving Jesus a thumbs up on his question. (laughs) (laughs) But I just think it's a really good question that is asked because he, I suppose he could have answered anything. And though Jesus might have known the answer, the man still had to give the answer. And he said, Lord, I want to see. Verse 42, Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Interesting here, there's no spitting on the ground or making mud or washing three times and you know some body of water or whatever. Like There's none of that. It's just he spoke the word and the man was healed. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. So it was quite a scene that was going on. Now, if we, if we go right to the next verse, it's actually now we're in Luke chapter 19. And it's a, it's a new story. Jesus had, was approaching Jericho in the one we just went through. And now in the very next verse, Luke 19, 1, Jesus entered Jericho. Now, Jericho is an interesting place. It was the setting for on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho that Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it was known to be, I think that road, if I remember, it was known to be kind of a dangerous road to travel. And it was a good thing for a setting. So he's now maybe on that road. He was entering it. Now he is there in Jericho and he was getting ready to pass through that community. So as Jesus entered 
and was Jericho was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. Interesting juxtaposition of these two stories. One man could not see because he was blind. The next man could not see because he was short of stature, but also maybe short on status in the community. People weren't going to move aside and let the chief tax collector, the guy who was robbing them blind, metaphorically, of course, he wasn't going to let, they weren't going to let him up to the front of the crowd. So this, this guy couldn't see for a different set of reasons. Which guy do you think was more blind? Zacchaeus. I mean, I think they're both, you know, curious, obviously, about who Christ is. Um, but Zacchaeus, you know, his own uh, curiosity leads him up into this uh, sycamore tree um, as a means to uh, catch a glimpse of Christ. But Zacchaeus doesn't recognize his need for healing. The physically blind man recognized his need for healing and recognized that Christ could bring uh, that healing to him. Um, yeah, the only thing, it's, it's so funny. I can't, I can't read this story without thinking of the, uh, the, the children's song about Zacchaeus. The wee little man. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because yeah. I, you know, I didn't come to Christ until I was in college, but for whatever reason, I think the first VBS I ever volunteered at, um, this song forever became stuck in my head. Uh, so anyway, this is kind of your, your song of your early days following Jesus. Yeah. Nothing like a, a 21 year old singing Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. Aren't you going to sing a few lines for he us? He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You got that. That's all. Memorized. That's all I remember. Is there, is there another verse that I'm missing? They're, they're probably, you know, you're probably missing the key verse, <laughs> the key verse, <laughs> the key verse of I'm going to your house today. Cause that's what Jesus says right here. He says, verse five, Jesus reached the spot, looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, he knew the guy's name come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Jesus invites himself to the man's house. Others would not have gone to the man's house because he was a tax collector. He was gathering resources from his fellow Jewish citizens in order to pay off the Roman government who was occupying force and also to lie in his own pocket because the scripture says in verse two, he was wealthy. People didn't want anything to do with this guy except Jesus did. And so Jesus invites himself to the man's house, and the guy says, absolutely. Like, I wanted to know who you are. I don't know at this moment, like, what's happening inside Zacchaeus' heart, because it's a very short exchange that we have here. We don't know how long it all took, what else was said, but as it's laid out in Scripture, it doesn't take very much time for Zacchaeus to jump down that tree and now to bust through the crowd and to come to Jesus and say, my house is open to you. Welcome. I, I want you to be there. But the people didn't like it. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone 
to be the guest of a sinner. Here we are again with Jesus breaking the barriers, but the people around Jesus unwilling or unable to see that what Jesus was doing was a good and right and holy thing. Rather, they they gasped and saw him as doing something which made him spiritually unclean, which probably even questioned his integrity as a as a spiritual teacher, as a rabbi, to go and and enter into the home of a man who was known to be a sinful traitor to the Jewish people. Why does Jesus continue to do this behavior? He answers the the question here uh, in a few verses. But yeah, I mean, Jesus, you know, the whole idea of guilt by association is at play here. And so as Jesus goes into the house of this, as you've said, this traitorous tax collector, um, it's scandalous. I mean, it's scandalous that Jesus would take up residence with a a traitor to the nation, uh, which in essence is then projected on to Jesus himself as is he's being traitorous by going uh, to this guy's house. But as Christ says here in a a few verses, which I know you're going to get to, but um, you know, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. And so Christ is intentional in pursuing the sinner the problem is, is that the crowd itself doesn't recognize and the, the religious leaders themselves don't recognize their own sin. And so they can't, they can't grasp that Jesus is there for them uh, as well. But here we have Zacchaeus who knows his sinful nature, um, I think recognizes just because he's, th- this is what he's been characterized for, you know, the whole of his adult life as a traitorous sinner. Um, it's part of his identity. It's part of his image. Um, and here we have, uh, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, who all the crowds are following around, uh, asking to stay at this man's house. And so Zacchaeus, obviously, uh, somebody who is probably a bit marginalized by his own people, and, and in some ways, understandably so, but we have Jesus reaching out to him and pursuing uh, him. So that verse, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost is sort of like the bumper sticker mission of Jesus. He declares it in a number of ways, a number of different times, but that may, that one's very memorable. And by extension, I would say that's our mission as well, mm-hmm. to seek and to save the lost. And so that the question I guess I have is, as pastors— how much of our calendar is structured around that as churches? How much of our budget is structured around seeking and saving the lost as, as people who are followers of God, how much of our life is given to seeking and saving the lost? I guess I, in some ways will answer my own question and I think it's way too little yeah. that we have, we have in many ways embraced Jesus, but we, I think sometimes we, we want to forget or ignore or 
pretend the lost don't exist. And, and what's crazy in that is we ourselves are, have received that salvation. Yes. And so, you know, it's, it's one of those things where there's an element where it's almost as if we forget our own lostness prior to Christ. And it, it, it's, this, it's strange. I mean, it, it defies reason that the follower of Christ or those who, who claim to have been, who recognize the salvation that they've received through Christ alone, that we would not then go out and share that salvation with others defies, it defies reason. Um, we've experienced the, 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 the fullness of Jesus's pursuit. We've experienced the fullness of his redemptive love and, and having experienced that salvation, having experienced forgiveness of sins, having experienced the embrace of the Father for all of eternity, experiencing his belovedness, um, when it comes to loving our neighbor, that should be first uh, on our heart, that at the end of the day, our end goal is to see our, our neighbor come to receive Christ. Or if, not, if nothing else, we have, we have loved our neighbor, we've engaged in relationship, uh, with our neighbor, whether literally or metaphorically, um, to where we're going to long to gain a hearing that we might have opportunity to point somebody uh, to Christ. Um, I just don't, yeah, it, it doesn't, I, you know, and part of it for me maybe is coming to receive, you know, I didn't grow up in the church. And so coming to receive Christ uh, in my late, eight, late teens, early 20s, um, Knowing life absent Jesus and knowing and, and having experienced uh, those followers of Christ who, who pursued me, who were a revelation of Christ's love uh, to me, how that, uh, and I need to be better about reciprocating that to the lives of others, but how to, to live without a longing for others to come to know Christ reveals a, a lack of understanding or what, but a lack of understanding of who we are and what Christ has called us to. We have the example set for us in both of these stories. In the, in the first one with the man who was blind, people tried to quiet him, silence him, and keep him away from Jesus. In the story of Zacchaeus, people said, he's a sinner, Jesus, stay away from him. Right. Both of them, the religious community wanted to ignore the person who was in need. The other th- comparison to me is that in both cases, both of the people who had an encounter with Jesus had a life change. The guy who was blind where Jesus restored his sight, it says he followed Jesus. So he didn't just like receive his sight and say, thanks a lot and go and go back to his community. He became a follower of Jesus. And then with Zacchaeus, we see in verse eight, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount, apparently from the other half that he was going to to keep. So they both had this transformational experience with Jesus, yet the people around Jesus, the disciples, religious people, the community, community of faith, were all trying to prevent both actions from happening. I just think there's some insights in these stories that we can learn from today and ask ourselves the hard question, and that is, if we've received this transformation from Jesus, what's the life change that we're called to, to follow Jesus, to give our possessions, whatever those things are, and to ask him what 
what that is. Like the question, what do you want me to do for you, is still a question that rings here. And part of what he may want to do for us is to change our hearts toward other people, change our hearts toward possessions, change our hearts toward our call in him. Our response to Christ, I think it's twofold. One, it's a life that is going to reflect the extravagant nature of God's grace and love toward us. And so we see that in Zacchaeus immediately, you know, he turns around and starts, you know, giving money uh, back to those he's stolen from, you know, four times the amount that he's, he's basically, that he's taken. Um, and so there's that, that change within us that we begin to more fully ident- increasingly identify our lives, become increasingly identified with Christ, uh, because our, our hearts are so saturated in his love that Jesus just ultimately comes overflowing, uh, through us. And so there's going to be that character change. And with that character change, there's going to also be that, that testimonial that emerges from us as well as we seek to bear witness to Christ to the lives of others that they too might come to experience that same grace um, that they would experience uh, themselves that that heart change that comes through relationship uh, with Jesus not just that heart change but again would know that their eternity is secured in Christ that they've experienced the embrace of God and that their lives would become ultimately a reflection of that. That's a good word. Good word. Well, next time we're going to take a look at a, a topic. I don't know if this is a lighter one, but it's Jesus' authority over sin. So there you go. That's something to look forward to. Folks, if you want to jump in deeper, go to our church's website, fishersumc.org, or our church app and click on the Life of Jesus link. This will take you to a lot more elements in this year-long study. Wherever you are, just jump in now and we, we just want you to get to know Jesus in this year. That's what this is all about. Amen. All right. Until next time, God bless.